Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Telegraph, the Telegraph. podcasts. There is a culture of silence and secrecy and arrogance in the NHS. For... The whole debate became ideological. You were either for lockdown or you were somehow in favour of more people dying. Three... All those pensioners they managed to save with lockdown only to let them freeze to death next winter. Two... We need a planet normal winter of discontent cookbook. <laughs> We do. Send in your recipes. Powdered egg. Mushy peas and fruit cocktail. <laughs> One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, the news machine's still on overdrive co-pilot, and Rishi Sunak's spring statement last week has rather failed to come into bloom. The Chancellor's been on the end of some stinging criticism since his House of Commons statement. Labour and Tory MPs alike have pointed out that during what the Independent Office for Budget Responsibility calls the worst drop in living standards since the early 1950s, Sunak did very little for those on benefits and low incomes. Then there's the Partygate scandal, back in the headlines after the first fines were levied on Downing Street staff who attended lockdown workplace jollies. And as for the Oscars... Many of us would barely have noticed the awards were taking place (laughs) had the actor Will Smith not slapped the comedian Chris Rock. Maybe that was the point. We should start, though, co-pilot, with a subject that I know is close to your heart, one you wrote about in a hugely powerful column in Wednesday's Telegraph, a piece still available online, of course. Alison, do tell us, what on earth's been going on within the NHS in Shropshire, specifically at the Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital Trust? Well, co-pilot, before we go into that tragedy, congratulations on last week's highly informative spring statement special with Ben Wright, who I thought was absolutely fantastic. And I have to say, Liam, that I did agree with Ben when he said his reaction to Rishi's statement was, is that it? Isn't it in the next few days that all these things are going to kick in? Is that right? Yeah, there's lots of things happening on April the 1st, on Friday. You've got the fuel bills increasing by 54% on average. That's household utility bills as their off-gem energy regulator price cap kicks in. You've also got national insurance increases happening from next week, the 6th of April, when the fiscal year starts. We've also got those VAT rises kicking in for the hospitality sector. They've been on an emergency rate of VAT during the latter part of lockdown and beyond, 12.5%. Their VAT then goes up to 20%. We'll feel that when we have a pint, when we go out for a meal, and also council tax rises kick in as well across the country. So it really is a sort of tsunami of woe. And that's why I'm pretty amazed, as I said on last week's podcast with the excellent Ben Wright, who I think did a brilliant job for us. Yeah, he did. He really did. I said I was really surprised, and Ben was really surprised too, that Rishi Sunak didn't do more, particularly for those on low incomes, uprating benefits only by 3.1%, again, from the start of the fiscal year on the 6th of April, when inflation is going to be 7 or 8%, official estimate, and probably a fair bit higher. I think someone said with rather dark humour that all those pensioners they managed to save with lockdown only to let them freeze to death next winter. I think your prediction that there's going to be some emergency mini budget in the summer, Liam, is absolutely right. But as you said at the top, the the thing I've been preoccupied with this week is this absolutely beyond appalling report that's just come out by Donna Ockenden, taken five years to compile this explosive report into the goings-on at Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital. 
listeners will already have seen and heard, and I know been terribly shocked that the report found that 201 babies died who would have survived with better care, including 131 stillbirths, 70 neonatal deaths, nine mothers died as a result of poor care, and 94 babies suffered avoidable brain damage between 2000 and 2000. And 19, really deafening, mortifying in every sense figures. Now, Donna Ockenden said it was astounding that the Trust's appalling maternity care went unchallenged for so long. Multiple external organisations, Liam, including the National NHS regulator, failed in their basic duty to hold the hospital to account And I don't think I could read this out really without A, being incredibly angry or B, crying. But the Ockenden report said, the trust tended to blame mothers, in some cases, even for their own deaths. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's absolutely devastating. Yeah. And it speaks to the arrogance and the kind of institutional lack of empathy that you captured so powerfully in your column. Well, yes, Look, I think there are various converging factors in this and the arrogance and complacency of the NHS apparatchiks, the revolving door of these people, Liam, if they were in a proper business and they did some, were responsible for some of these things, they would be out on their ear and they just come back, they bounce back these people into senior positions. Absolutely extraordinary. But just trying to unpick this now, obviously I've <laughs> had two lovely babies myself and had a very difficult traumatic birth was my first. So I suppose I felt sort of massive sympathy for the parents who had gone through this ordeal at Shrewsbury and Telford. So we've got these different, as I said, converging factors. There was an obsession with women having so-called normal births. And partly that came from the Royal College of Midwives and the active birth movement, which was against the over-medicalization of birth, saying that C-sections should always be a last resort. I really think they did have a point. There had been much too much sort of interference in birth when it was going well. But I think it was the late, great PJ O'Rourke who says, that idealism hardens into ideology and ideology leads to death. Well, that certainly happened here. There was considerable pressure within the NHS to reduce cesarean rates because, Liam, they cost more money. So basically what happened is women were left in labour far too long. The fetuses got distressed or stuck. Then there was a frantic attempt to pull the baby out with forceps or suction von twos. You don't even want to know about that. It's absolutely horrible. And that would end up causing traumatic damage to mum and baby. But in many cases, it was too late. Now, by 2002, Shrewsbury and Telford Hospital Trust had the lowest C-section rate in the entire country, for which it was praised by the Commons Health Select Committee, but babies were paying the price for that low C-section rate with their tiny lives. And I want to say, Liam, now, I don't think that it was just in Shropshire that that was happening. I know that in the next few days, the NHS will be covering its arse. Oh, we're terribly sorry. Profuse apologies. This is just one bad apple. No, we know There were other maternity units in that period that were getting bad reports from the Care Quality Commission, that's the NHS regulator, because their C-section stats were too high. So famous hospitals like St Mary's, where all the royal babies are born, were chastised for having too high a C-section rate. They were putting safety first. And at Shrewsbury and Telford, the C-section rate was 8 to 12%, lower than the UK, average of about 30%. But the mortality rates, Liam, in the maternity and neonatal units were running at least 10% higher than in equivalent hospitals. Now, if there had only been proper monitoring of procedures and outcomes by the trust, the alarm bells would have started clanging like Big Ben. But 
there were no alarm bells sounded. The terrorising, the bullying of NHS staff who aren't allowed to speak out today to Planet Normal and to me at The Telegraph. We've had astonishing emails, heart-rending emails, both from NHS staff and from mothers who've had terrible labours or lost babies. And there is a culture of silence and secrecy and arrogance in the NHS. And Liam, in the end, it was down to two amazing mothers, two normal, normal mums who both lost their baby daughters on the day of their birth and who decided to turn Cagney and Lacey and start finding out what had happened. The link to your column on this astonishing scandal is in the show notes to this episode, Alison. This is one of those stories where there's so much news going on, there's so much focus, you know, understandably on war in Europe, there's so yeah. much focus on the cost of living crisis, there's so much focus on these party gate fines that have been imposed, and yet news that really seriously impacts this astonishingly important institution, mm. the NHS, news of genuine human suffering. I did actually slightly feel myself welling up when I mm. read the part of your column where you talked about parents, bereaved parents who've mm. been through massive trauma, having to get these conversations, get these investigations going, pushed back always and everywhere by sort of NHS apparats. I wouldn't even use the word bureaucrats in this case. It's such a difficult thing to write about. And you did it, as I say, very, very powerfully, because of course, we both know, and we'll have to say now to sort of stem some of the hate mail, that of course, there are many people in the NHS who do a great job. And sometimes our health service does do a great job. But not always, and there are a disturbing number of occasions where it is too inhumane, where it is too bureaucratic, where it does suffer from massive statist, secretive tendencies, torpor, uh, and an inability to compute the kind of human misery that's happening under its auspices. Yes. I mean, one medic wrote to me and said that whistleblowers are treated like dissidents in an authoritarian regime. We also heard from a midwife. I'm hoping to persuade her to come on the rocket, Liam. She wrote me such a devastating email about what she'd had to do to treat women like they were on a conveyor belt as a woman who's been in that incredibly vulnerable. It's the most vulnerable day of your life. You know, you're so trusting. You're so dependent yeah. on these people. You wouldn't even occur to you to say, do you think that's all right? Or, you know, should we get them out now? In my case, I'd had a very long labor and senior registrar poked his head around the door, came in. I hate to mention the word cervix halligan, although we know that all men have got one of those as well now, don't we? But anyway, <laughs> I think my cervix after 26 hours of labour was about as dilated as a polo mint. And this lovely guy just said, right, let's get that baby out. And I was down in the operating theatre really quickly with a fantastic anaesthetist came in, gave me an epidural and, you know, out she came, all nine pound, 10 ounces off. It was absolutely ludicrous. I was never going to... That's a big baby. That is a big and, baby. And, and you're, you're, with all due respect, you're quite a little person. I am, I know. And also... Another thing that people don't really talk about, it's a very, very awkward subject. Women of my generation, particularly professional women, we've tended to postpone having our babies until our 30s, even our 40s. Now, the female body, it's very different matter pushing out a small baby when you're 18 or 24, like my, the age my mum was when she had me. I was 35 when I had my first child. And it's very different, Liam. You, can, you can't just say all these women are going to be able to have, you know, they all said a normal birth is preferable. Well, yes, a normal birth is preferable, but not if the baby dies. That's not preferable. And there's this sort of false idealization. My God, you didn't want to have a surgical intervention getting in the way of you and this profound experience of, you know, your earth mother communing with your new baby. But as I said, that lovely idea often doesn't play out in practice and you just need to get the baby out. I just think it's worth reading. I know we normally save the emails till the end, but something just came into the Planet Normal inbox before we began recording. And Jessica wrote, I'm shedding silent tears reading your column today, shaming the brazen and bullying tactics of an institution's denial that leave us with one of the highest stillbirth rates in Europe. We as a family are nine years into a medical negligence investigation following our son's brain injuries and severe trauma at birth. 
He survived, but it need not have happened. And he lives with the profound physical and learning disabilities and seizures that resulted from substandard care every day of his life. He was grossly let down by both our local hospital and my GP 11 years ago. There are no geographical limits to these systemic failings as far as I can see. And the hospital at which my son was born has one of the highest stillbirth rates in the country, which is possibly their only accolade. I'm yet to fully process the impact it had on me as a first-time mum to be so utterly failed by the healthcare system to which this country is held captive. What I do know is that regardless of the outcome of my son's legal case, I lost all trust and faith in the NHS that day. I'll never be able to depend on it without question or to assume that it will be there when I or my family need medical intervention. Yes, the NHS saves lives, but it costs lives too until we can stop worshipping our national health disservice and viewing those who choose to work within it as infallible it will continue to cost many more lives. I remain an avid listener of Planet Normal. Thank you for continuing to shine a light on such grave failings within our country and society that need to be discussed no matter how uncomfortable those conversations might be. Jessica. Jessica, thank you for writing that. I did well up when I read that, thinking about you and your lovely boy. And this, Liam, is what we've got to talk about, the idolization of an organization which has, in Shropshire, killed 201 babies and left 94 of them brain damaged. We cannot, we cannot have these sacred cows. We must have, at the very least, a royal commission into the NHS. We need to ask why this organisation, to which we give tens of billions of pounds a year, is not performing at the standard of other equivalent health systems in Europe and around the world. We've discussed it many times, haven't we, Alison, on Planet Normal? The problem is, any time anyone mentions anything that's not overwhelmingly positive about the NHS, they're accused of being ideological and wanting to have a kind of stripped down, those cruel words, American-style system. Yeah, yeah. yeah, There are many, many, many forms of healthcare around the world, many of which are far more successful and give much better bang for your taxpayer's buck than the UK healthcare system. You are a staunch advocate of free at the point of use healthcare. I am a staunch advocate of free at the point of use healthcare. Almost everyone I know in British politics, media and broader society is an advocate of free at the point of use healthcare. It would actually be politically impossible to not have free at the point of use healthcare in this country. And I've never heard of a major politician of any party in this country discuss a departure from free at the point of use healthcare. So having established that, can we now have a discussion about what the best way is to deliver this free at the point of use healthcare? And international evidence and decades of historic experience in this country show unequivocally the best way is not a monolithic NHS that employs over a million people and is increasingly arrogant and politically untouchable. I want a mixed economy of health while preserving free at the point of use healthcare. We have to keep saying it, don't we? Otherwise, we're shut down. When we say free at the point of delivery, we we do need a mixed funding system, but it would still mean we pay for the NHS, don't we? We pay a fortune for the, this idea that it's free. I mean, you know, how much of GDP does it take now? It's really a big slice, isn't it? Well, healthcare as a whole is either side of 10% of GDP, depending on how you define it. But free at the point of use just means you don't have a situation where people are left in the street because yeah. they can't pay. And how the payment is made, whether it is simply a taxpayer-funded system entirely or it is an insurance-based system where people pay in premiums or their work pays pay in premiums and then there is a safety net for people who don't have the insurance, that's all it means. It just means it's not a cruel system no. that stops prevents people from getting health care, not least in life-threatening situations, because they can't 
pay. And no one is arguing for anything that departs from that. Of course they're not. And frankly, you have massive vested interest across the public sector, particularly within the NHS, some of the doctors' unions, the nurses' unions. They will not contemplate any kind of change whatsoever, even in the face of glaring evidence that the system is not working, as you've highlighted in your column. I remember when I made a dispatches documentary for Channel 4 many years ago about the NHS, it was so difficult, even for a highly reputable news organisation linked to you know one of the most prestigious documentary strands in Britain. We were just trying to do an audit of where the massive increase in NHS spending had gone. And I'm a trained economist. They wouldn't have had to do much to explain it. They just had to be a bit more transparent. It was literally like trying to investigate the worst opaque corporate structure. And the NHS went to endless lengths to try and lawyer us out of existence, pretty much. Mm. All of it paid for by the taxpayer, of course, when all we were trying to do was actually answer questions from viewers and listeners about where all this money was going, because it is a huge amount of money. All I know is that the answer is going to be complex and the answer is going to be hard to find and to implement it. But unless we can have an honest and open discussion that doesn't instantly become a bun fight where opposition politicians are finger pointing and saying absolute nonsense, like 10 minutes to save the NHS and you know, threatening people, scaring particularly older people yeah. with life-threatening conditions that if certain politicians get the upper hand, then the NHS is going to be abolished. Again, we have to have this discussion. We've touched on this discussion on and off on Planet Normal. It's on our collective minds a lot. Uh, maybe some of the midwives and other excellent NHS professionals, and there are thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of excellent NHS professionals that have emailed you, Alison. I know they fear for their jobs. I know they fear for their reputations. Maybe some of them can come on anonymously because we have had, haven't we, in the past, anonymous doctors, anonymous nurses talking to us on Planet Normal. Of course, we check out their bona fides. We know that they are who they say they are. We don't just put anyone on the air, but we allow them to come on anonymously because of the dangers. But Liam, ask yourself this question. Why are doctors and nurses' salaries paid for by the British taxpayer having to appear anonymously to tip people off about things in the system? You know, it's like they're in the mafia and they'll be taken out the back and shot if they tell people. So I know you like the data. So the OECD ranks the UK 27th out of 38 countries for infant mortality, 20th for maternal mortality. It is safer to give birth in Hungary or Slovenia. This is not good enough. We are one of the biggest, most successful economies in the world. And I know you referred earlier to this sort of politicians not wanting to go anywhere near the sacred cow. But I think there's a a shift, Liam, and this is partly because post-pandemic we know we have these absolutely amazing waiting lists. So they're saying it's about 6 million at the moment. You know, I think it's probably much more than that. I've been talking to consultants who say that some of the people on their list will die before they're seen. Okay. So that's how bad it is. We could be looking at nine to 10 million on the waiting list by the 2024 general election. And just this week, the British Attitudes Survey has shown that satisfaction in the NHS has fallen to the lowest level for 25 years. So only 36% are now satisfied with the NHS. And you don't have to be a genius to predict that that figure is going to be plummeting in the next couple of years as people realise that they're literally not going to get those tests or or, or that hospital appointments. So 300-odd babies being killed or brain damaged doesn't kind of move the debate. What on earth is going to move the debate? Well, nothing can bring back those poor babies, Alison. Nothing can repair the lifetime of suffering for their parents. Crikey, it's welling up again. But if at least this astonishingly disturbing report that's come out from the Shropshire NHS can spark a conversation, a long overdue conversation, if it can jolt us out of complacency, if it can shame people who close down the conversation to allow the conversation to flourish, 
hopefully we can move on and create an NHS that we all want, a broader health system that we all want, free at the point of use, world-class, reflecting the quality of our medical staff, the quality of our medical training, the quality of our long history of medicine here in this country, then it will be at least some small saving grace. You know, Alison, we could have spent the top of this podcast talking about the Oscars. We could have talked about (laughs) Rishi Sunak's 100-pound shoes. We could have talked about the culture wars and the fact that the leader of the opposition can't confirm or deny (laughs) if a woman can have a penis. You know what? I'm so glad we didn't. Me too. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. And so to our latest Planet Normal guest. Who has climbed aboard the rocket of right thinking this week? The capsule of common sense. Well, Alison, Mark Woolhouse is Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at Edinburgh University. One of Britain's leading epidemiologists, Professor Woolhouse is a member of the Scottish Government's COVID-19 Advisory Group and SPY-M, a subcommittee of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, which advises the UK Government. Unlike so many other scientific insiders, though, Mark Woolhouse has retained an admirable capacity for independent thoughts and for frank discussion. His scientific memoir, The Year the World Went Mad, has just been published and provides astonishing behind-the-scenes insights into some of the decisions, advice and concerns of scientists during the early months of the crisis, with Woolhouse himself arguing that harsh lockdown measures caused more harm than good. You say in your book that historians will view lockdown as a monumental mistake on a truly global scale. That's pretty hard for anyone to admit, isn't it, given the pain and the suffering that the population has been through in the last couple of years? Yeah, it is. It's an uncomfortable truth, I think. We went into lockdown with a particular view of what we thought we might achieve with it, which was basically this idea of getting rid of the virus once and for all. That's what lockdown was intended to do. And when we failed to achieve that, starting in China in January 2020, what we didn't do at the same time was change our strategy to a more sustainable strategy that wouldn't cause all the harms that lockdown has. I think that was a tremendous mistake. And I think history will judge us very, very harshly. How did we get to that point, Professor Woolhouse? You know, in the past, we haven't quarantined the whole population. We've tended to quarantine the sick and the vulnerable. Was it because of the example of China locking down? Was it because with online commerce and video conferencing, we could lock down without the whole economy grinding to a halt, without government grinding to a halt? Well, it just simply wouldn't have been practical to lock down in the way we did even a decade or two beforehand. But beyond that, I think it's very important to realise that we did not plan to do this. This was not part of any country's pandemic preparedness, pandemic response protocols. It wasn't there. We made this up in response to COVID-19 over a matter of a few weeks in early 2020. And we made it up for the reason that China, with WHO, World Health Organization support, had the idea that they could eradicate this new virus the same way they had successfully eradicated its relative SARS back in 2003. They thought they could do the same again, and lockdown was one of the tools for doing that. So they implemented this strategy with a view of eradicating the virus, but it didn't eradicate the virus. And as I said, having realised that we couldn't eradicate the virus, we should have changed strategy, and we didn't. It's almost as if politicians, having taken us down one path, 
couldn't then respond as we learnt more. I mean, would you agree that the first lockdown was defendable because we really didn't know what we were dealing with? Did you defend the first lockdown internally? And when did you change your mind? Well, I never changed my mind that lockdown was not ever going to be a sustainable response. And I never changed my mind that when we locked down in March 2020 in the UK, that this was not going to solve the problem. Sure. And I think it's an important point that a lot of people in the media, the politicians, the public seem to have the idea at the time that if we just knuckled down for a few weeks and sat this out, we could actually solve the problem. Now, I knew and a lot of other epidemiologists knew that that was never going to be the case. So no, I was never happy with lockdown. What we should have been doing in those weeks before lockdown was realizing the danger and coming up with alternative ways to control this virus. And I think we had the pieces of the jigsaw on the table, as it were, but I didn't manage to put them together quick enough, nor did anyone else, to say, yeah, we need to avoid lockdown and this is how we do it. Here's my proposal. I didn't manage to come up with a clear proposal for doing it until we'd already gone into lockdown. And the reason I did support lockdown at the time when I was asked was simply because the alternative of doing nothing, to my mind, was absolutely worse. But I was quite determined from that day onwards, from the moment that the lockdown happened, that the biggest priority was to get out of it as soon as possible and as safely as possible. A study came out in February, which Alison and I highlighted here on Planet Normal. It's been called the John Hopkins study. It's kind of a study of other academic studies. And it concludes that lockdown only reduced deaths by 0.2%. Now, if that's true or if that's a defendable number, then the huge harms of lockdown, psychological harms, businesses being pummeled and ruined, the impact on children's education, cancer deaths with the NHS focused heavily on COVID would more than outweigh the benefits of lockdown. Now, what do you think of this John Hopkins study, Professor Woolhouse? Do you think it's a reasonable, well put together account of what happened? It's called a systematic review and meta-analysis. There are hundreds of this kind of study for various public health problems every year. So it's quite a well-understood methodology. The difficulty with it is basically deciding which studies you include and which studies you don't include. So I don't think anyone's arguing too much with the Johns Hopkins conclusions about the studies they do include, but they did admit other studies that have come out with different conclusions and suggest that the lockdown was more effective. It's actually not an easy question to answer at all, This how effective was lockdown, sure. because it critically depends, and this ought to be really obvious to your listeners, it depends what you compare it with. The counterfactual, so to speak. The counterfactual. It depends what you compare it with, and that gives you a measure of how effective it was. So all of these studies, whether they're in the Johns Hopkins analysis or not, depend very much on what they compare lockdown against. And you weren't, of course, advocating do nothing. A lot of highly reputable epidemiologists, many of whom you will know personally, the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, for instance, just a few among many who were talking about age-discriminated shielding, helping people to shield if they're old and infirm or otherwise clinically vulnerable, while letting the rest of us get on with our lives, keep the economy going, and so on, right? That's right. Now, I didn't sign the Great Barrington Declaration myself, but I do agree with large sections of their analysis, particularly this question of protecting those who need protecting. The argument that held sway in 2020 was the best way to do that was to reduce the transmission of the virus, suppress the virus in the whole population. And that was what we did. That's what lockdown was intended to achieve. So that was the argument that won sway. If you look at it carefully, and we did, we did the analysis on this together with some other colleagues in Scotland, of the people who died of COVID-19 during that first wave in the UK, more than half got their infection during the lockdown. Not before, not after, during it. So whatever else you say about lockdown, it was a misdirection of effort because it simply didn't save the majority of people who need saving. Lockdown was not enough to save those people. 
That tells you straight away that actually the Great Barrington Declaration has made an important point there, that we absolutely did need more protection for those people who didn't get protected because lockdown didn't provide them with that protection. The public inquiry is approaching. If it wasn't for this ghastly conflict between Russia and Ukraine, I'm sure we'd be talking a lot more about the public inquiry, given its huge importance. That will determine, I think, you'd agree, Professor Walhouse, to some extent, how we respond to the next pandemic. So let me ask you, before that public inquiry really gets going, were there a problem with the way death certificates were filled out? We had deaths due to COVID, deaths with COVID. Is there any merit in the argument? Is there any truth in the argument that some health professionals were just putting COVID on the death certificate because that would draw more resources for wherever they were working from the NHS? Well, I've certainly no evidence from personal experience to support that line of argument. It is true that attributing cause of death for anything, not just COVID, is far more difficult than you might think. And this problem predates COVID by many, many years. And what you'll find is that on most death certificates, there are often a primary cause, but also one or even many more secondary causes, things that contributed to that person's death. And and teasing that out has been a problem for epidemiologists and demographers, as I say, for many, many years. So this isn't a new problem. So I think we can conclude, yes, that there are difficulties in getting accurate estimates of the number of people Uh, that died of COVID-19. And incidentally, that goes either way, particularly early on in the pandemic. There were also many reports where people might have been misdiagnosed in terms of their cause of death because of the lack of testing. So it can go both ways. And I think in the future, you're right, that we should have in place ways of trying to get to these kind of numbers more accurately, because they're so crucial in understanding uh, both what the policy needs might be, but also for all of us in terms of understanding the kind of risks we face. We need to get these numbers right. But I really don't believe that they were so badly wrong over the last couple of years that it would make a material difference to how the pandemic could or should have been managed. And of course, a big part of the public inquiry and how we respond next time will be driven in part by international comparisons, how we did compared to other countries. Is there any evidence that the number of COVID deaths... I use that deliberately blunt phrase because it's the phrase that's almost always used in public discourse. Is there any evidence that the number of COVID deaths in the UK because of our methodology or particular quirks of our system was overestimated, Professor Woolhouse? Well, there's been a, a big international comparison published recently that's based on the measure called excess death. So how many more people die than you would have expected during the period of the COVID pandemic? And that does place the UK... Uh, rather lower down the unwanted lead table of those who suffered worse from the pandemic. But whichever way you cut it, there is no denying that the UK suffered a very high death toll. So the lessons I hope we would learn and the ways that I would have done things differently would involve not only trying to reduce the time we spent in lockdown and under these severe restrictions, but very much also on reducing the death toll. This thing is a significant public health problem, and we do want to reduce the burden it causes. And so I'm very keen to identify ways of doing that. And as we were discussing earlier, one of the areas to focus on is those people who are most vulnerable, who weren't, as it turned out, fully protected by lockdown. Before we move on to some more questions about the future, Professor Woolhouse, let me just ask you this. How do you think the media conducted itself as a whole during this pandemic? What were your impressions as an academic of the broadcasters, the newspapers' efforts to report this in a responsible way? Mixed. I think a lot of the discussion in the media was of a very high standard. I think the public discussions of the pros and cons of different strategies, where we are, what we should do, reflected the discussions that were being had among the scientists and the science advisory groups as well. And I think that was quite right that they did, because the issues we were discussing as scientists had such huge effects on the day-to-day lives of pretty much everyone in the country. So I think it was absolutely right that that debate should be held in public in the media as well. But it was far from perfect. And I am in the book somewhat critical of the BBC, particularly the television news, who I felt quite consistently, while reporting real situations, 
whether they were the tragic deaths of particular individuals or pictures of hospitals that were undeniably overwhelmed at some periods of the pandemic. But he didn't put those in context. And so if you were watching the news and that was your main source of information, you could get a very skewed understanding of what was actually going on in terms of the numbers and statistics. And that did bother me. Uh, I think elsewhere in the BBC, they were much better. They were much more balanced. And I think other media outlets were more balanced as well. But I think there's a little bit of soul searching to be done there. It's not right to generate a climate of fear, is it, in order to control a population? I'm not saying that's what the BBC did consciously, but we know from government documents that that was at least part of the intention of some of our medical authorities. In the end, though, Professor Woolhouse, those TV adverts, COVID doesn't discriminate, everyone's at risk. I mean, that's just scientific bunkum. Well, your word, not mine, but I'm not disagreeing. Um, This is a very discriminatory virus. It's ageist, it's sexist, it's racist. We know now, because of the retrospective analysis, that over 90% of the deaths that occurred in that first year were in just 15% of the population. And we knew who those people were. We could identify them very precisely. And we actually knew it very early on. We knew even from February that this virus was not a particular threat to children unless they were unfortunate enough to be seriously ill with other conditions anyway. So most young and healthy people were simply not at much risk. And yet, yes, the advice came out of one of the subgroups of SAGE called SPY-B that those demographics, the young and the healthy, were not sufficiently concerned about the virus. There was a worry that they might not therefore comply with the social distancing. And as a result, we got this messaging that everybody's at risk. And it wasn't true. It was never true. We knew it wasn't true at the time. That was unforgivable, wasn't it? Well, it's not great science. No, that should not have happened. And I hope that is one of the questions that the inquiry will dig into very deeply to see how we got ourselves into position where we had public health messaging that was not based on the public health science that had already been done. You will know more than anyone, Professor Woolhouse, that this debate about lockdown became very political, very ideological, very early. There's almost a sense, as Planet Normal listeners will tell you, where to not be unquestioningly pro all aspects of lockdown was to be dubbed, you know, not a decent kind person. We got lots of hate mail on Planet Normal. I'm sure you did as well. So do you think this debate is now open and active enough that common sense will prevail the next time that there's a pandemic? I particularly am heartened that in recent weeks, Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi, who was, of course, the vaccines rollout minister, has said, quotes, that locking down schools was clearly a mistake. Does that mean we won't make that mistake again? Well, I sincerely hope so. Like you, I was very heartened by those comments. I think that was a very important development in this debate. I'm afraid I do still think there are echoes of those earlier days when, as one of your media colleagues put it, supporting lockdown became a test of virtue. I think there are echoes of that even now. And when I've been talking about this book to audiences all all around the country, The question I keep getting asked is, basically, they don't say it quite this way, but this is what they mean. Doesn't being against lockdown mean that you're in favour of more deaths? Well, absolutely not. Unbelievable. You've given your life to science. You've given your life to medicine. I mean, crikey. Well, exactly. But also because, for those who bother to read the book, I lay out very clearly how you can do both how you can both stay out of lockdown, but also save more lives. And that is done by a balance between some restrictions on most of the population, because this is a very nasty disease and you want to try and control its spread, but not taken to anything like the limits or extremes of lockdown, and some effective measures on protecting the people who need protecting. And if you do those two things well, you don't have to do either of them to the extremes. And you end up with a a middle-of-the-road strategy, which is sensible. It reflects public health principles. It reflects the evidence at the time. But we didn't take it. We didn't take it for the reason you gave, that the whole debate became ideological. You were either for lockdown and suppressing the virus, or you were somehow in favour of more people dying. And that simply wasn't right. 
you're a distinguished academic. You've had a brilliant career. Now you've written a book called The Year the World Went Mad. It's a fabulous, rip-roaring, rollicking read while never compromising on scientific evidence and inquiry. Many congratulations and many thanks from me, Alison Pearson, and I'm sure thousands and thousands of Planet Normal listeners. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's a fascinating interview, isn't it? Music to our ears, isn't it? We, the great reviled, Halligan, having someone as distinguished as Professor Mark Woolhouse agreeing with us. Look, I think it's very interesting. We have just passed the two-year anniversary of that first lockdown, 23rd of March, 2020. And people like Mark Woolhouse with this book are breaking ranks, speaking out in a way that it was very difficult to do. I know he said that the media had lots of discussions of a high standard about the pandemic and the whole theory of lockdown. That's the one thing, Liam, I didn't agree with him on. I don't think the media was reflecting the backroom discussions of scientists at all. Now, I think from Planet Normal's perspective, I think we are entering a a period which let's call it the great forgetting. Some listeners (laughs) will have noticed this week that Jonathan Ashworth, Labour's shadow minister for work and pensions, was on the telly claiming, saying that Labour, we always wanted schools to stay open while they could. I don't think anyone looking at the Twitter accounts of any of the Labour front bench would have seen any possible support for keeping schools open. So it is the great amnesia, the great forgetting. No one is going to be in favour of having closed schools at all quite soon. And that is gratifying to us. I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? Listening to Mark Woolhouse, he was there, Liam. He was in Spy M, as you said. He was privy to those cogitations. And I think that you called it scientific bunkum, didn't you? How glaring is that? He said quite clearly they knew in February over 90% of deaths in that first year occurred in only 15% of the population. It was a highly discriminatory virus. So they were basically lying to a great chunk of the population, weren't they, to guarantee compliance. It's, as you said, it's bunkum and it's grossly unethical, isn't it? I think one reason Mark Woolhouse is such a powerful speaker, Alison, is that he remains so measured, even though when you read his book, he's clearly so angry. He does a great job of staying just about inside the tent, of staying just about on the line of respectability. I mean, he's he's risking it talking to us renegades, isn't he? Um, <laughs> but he is intensely proud of the book that he's written. It is a brilliant book, not only in terms of its timing and the quality of its first-hand research and experience, but also how it wears the science with such vigilance, but so lightly for the reader. This book deserves a, a very, very broad readership, not least as hopefully the news clouds clear in the coming weeks and months, we move towards this vital, vital public inquiry because it's the public inquiry, Alison, which will determine whether or not the world once again goes mad, or at least the UK does, when we're faced with one of these pandemics. And I sincerely hope, fingers and toes crossed, that Mark Woolhouse and his book will have a huge influence on that public inquiry. The country needs it. I think one of the most shocking things, Liam, in the book, although not to those who are aboard the rocket of right thinking, is Mark Wallhouse actually admits that he called out some of these graphs and predictions. You know, you remember when we were all looking at these graphs and saying, you know, from Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty, we were saying that those graphs couldn't possibly be true. And Woolhouse in the book says that after Valance had presented a graph in September 2020, he criticised Mark Woolhouse, said that this graph was implausible, and he was told to correct his views. Absolutely outrageous. He had been concerned about the loss of scientific credibility After seeing the graph, it says he quickly posted what was intended to be a reassuring comment through the Science Media Centre, saying it was highly unlikely that the UK would see so many cases per day by mid-October. He says, as it turned out, we barely reached half that predicted number. However, Mark Woolhouse's objections 
did not go down well. After a flurry of emails, he writes, I was invited to correct my comments. The invitation was passed on to me by a messenger, so I can't be sure where in the system it originated. A couple of weeks later, I was asked to give evidence to a House of Commons select committee generating another flurry of emails from two government scientists. Listen to this, Liam. Concerned that I might criticise Sir Patrick's graph before MPs. And Professor Mark Wilkhouse concludes, it wasn't my views that needed correcting. It was the projections. Now onto our listener emails, an absolutely bumper crop this week, particularly, Liam, no surprise, reacting to the terrible scandal in Shropshire. This is from A. Sayer. I don't know her name, but A. Sayer writes, what a big difference in the experience of my labour 38 years ago and that of my daughter 27 years later. I had a midwife near me for most of the time, monitoring instruments, talking to me, examining me. My daughter had a series of midwives over her 28-hour labour. They ticked plenty of boxes, barely spoke to us, didn't physically examine her, but they did spend loads of time huddled around the computer at the nurse station. If I hadn't been extremely insistent that a consultant was brought immediately on the threat that I would not rest until their careers were ended if something happened to my daughter and her baby, I shudder to think of the outcome. Needless to say, I have a fabulous grandchild but there were to be no more. As usual, the sign concerning abuse towards staff was pointed out to me. I had to tell them that in the private sector, being very politely asked to do their job competently wasn't normally required. In other words, it's not an option to do a little work between your breaks and handovers. Oh, and one last point, my daughter is a doctor. And another point, sack all NHS managers earning more than 150k. They are not worth it and generally useless. The money saved would build and equip at least one new hospital a year. Wow, that's powerful. This is from Eddie. Hello, Planet Normal, says Eddie. Another thought-provoking podcast this week regarding the Chancellor's spring statement. I'm not sure I agree with Liam, though, when he says he fears the economic crisis will lead to industrial action and a winter of discontent. I lived through the three-day week and the power cuts of the 70s, says Eddie, trying to keep tropical fish alive. And candles are my abiding (laughs) childhood memory. (laughs) A decade in the 70s of strikes and flying pickets, culminating in that winter of discontent when even the dead couldn't be buried. Then we had Thatcher and over 3 million unemployed and the move away from traditional, highly unionised industries like coal mining, leading to the miners' strike and the battles between miners and the police. At the time, I just got on with life. It was years later when, reflecting on those times, I wondered just how close the country had come to a societal breakdown. Yes, people will be worse off, says Eddie, as inflation and fuel costs bite, but I think the spectre of unemployment and the possible loss of those things people have strived for will limit industrial action. Whether you agree with Thatcher's vision or not, there has been a huge change since those dark days of the 70s and early 80s. People have far more to lose than we did back then, and those mining, shipbuilding and steelmaking communities where they were all in it together, they don't exist anymore. In my opinion, the vast majority will hunker down and hope to get through it, just as they have done for the last two years during the pandemic. If unemployment does rise to the levels of the 80s, well, then... We'll see. A really thoughtful email there from Eddie. Something we've been getting a lot of posts about, Copilot, is about this transgender issue, which has been much in the news. So I really like this comment from Kim. My daughter is a transgender woman, her partner ditto. I try to be a supportive parent and I support and endorse her choices. But I'm also old enough to remember the struggles and obstacles that women faced in the 70s to gain equal pay, the fight that has gone on to see women's sport funded and taken as seriously as men's, the years of struggle that many victims of domestic abuse and rape had to endure before the powers that be woke up to the reality of the daily violence against women. I could go on. You get the picture. I respect the right of anyone to live their life as they see fit. But when that right erases the rights, safety and dignity of others, it has to be questioned and challenged. This is from Michael. 
I've been a regular listener to Planet Normal since it started and have been following you both in the Telegraph and Liam on GB News too. Hooray! I compliment you for reading the national mood and economic reality, Liam, the day after the Chancellor's spring statement. However, I take issue with your view that Rishi Sunak is a good guy. He's tone deaf. He's completely out of touch. Mm -hmm. Good guys are not like that. Since last Wednesday, that was the spring statement, of course, I've gone from raging to feeling utterly depressed, says Michael. We've achieved Brexit. We should now be moving as quickly as possible to cut red tape, cut taxes, grow the economy. That's the best way to deal with our debt. Cutting taxes does raise more revenue. Nigel Lawson proved that back in the 80s. Cameron found that when he reduced corporation tax, he collected more money. Indeed, Sunak discovered that when he cut stamp duty during the pandemic. How dare he think he can be like Lawson and have his photograph on the wall of the office in the Treasury? What a delusional hypocrite Sunak is. Our current plan to transition to net zero is incoherent and mad, says Michael. It's been made up without a proper analysis of what the consequences of decisions are. Legislation's been passed that locks in decisions that are hugely problematic. There was no debate and certainly no public consultation. I'm starting to think I should be making plans to leave the country. Please don't leave the country, Michael. We need you. <laughs> I think there's a little space at the back of the rocket. Pearson Towers, we're, st- we're, we're stockpiling tins. It's going to be a life of mushy peas and fruit cocktail. Spam fritters. Well, I told you, we're all going to be, you're going to be out shooting squirrels by this we got time. We've got a Planet Normal Winter of Discontent cookbook. <laughs> Send do. in your recipes. Gavin says, following on from Professor Mark Woolhouse, I'm a working class millennial with no formal education and was anti-lockdown from the very start. I just couldn't believe we were isolating healthy people and leaving the vulnerable to fend for themselves. Old people couldn't get groceries because the young hogged all the delivery slots, plus the middle class is emptying the shelves. Most people can't afford to do multiple weeks, months of shopping in one go, especially low income. So it's left to people like me to volunteer to do their shopping. I continue to work every day, queued for supermarkets several times between shifts, haven't been vaccinated and took nearly two years to finally catch COVID. And I got a cough for two days. How was it that I was right from the start and my betters got it so wrong? Well, Gavin, we don't believe in betters. The term betters does no place in the planet normal rocket of right thinking. And also, Halligan, still buoyant enthusiasm for the Planet Normal event on planet Earth. It's coming. Pack your bag. I can see the head. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, this is very much an obstetric episode of Planet Normal. (laughs) I'm just a bit worried about what people are going to think. What do they think we're like? Oh, my goodness. Poking through the cervix of doubt, the head is coming. The Planet Normal (laughs) event is happening. God almighty. Sarah and Dave. Hi, folks. We would love to attend a gathering of fellow stowaways. Hope no COVID pass will be required. Certainly not, Sarah and Dave. <laughs> yeah, you go to your planet normal passenger locator form. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's it for Planet Noble for another week on that bombshell. As we leave the sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, Alison, it's you. I think we'll give it to Kim for that really wise perspective on the trans debate, having a trans daughter herself. I thought it was really excellent. So, Kim, send us your details, please, and you will be getting a highly sought-after Planet Normal mug. That's right. Email planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and put mug winner in the subject heading. And that rare as rocking horse poo mug will be winging its way to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Halligan's constantly reading them out to me and it does help others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. Do keep emailing us and some news. The Planet Normal 100th episode event will be held on, wait for it, drumroll co-pilot. Drumroll. Anyway. It's Wednesday the 11th of May. (laughs) Wednesday the 11th of May at 7pm. It's in central London. Information on where you get tickets is in the show notes to this episode. Tickets will be on sale soon via that link. We'll be releasing more details also of who the guests are. And don't worry, this is just the first Planet Normal in-person encounter. More are in the pipeline. But if you do want to be part of our first live recording marking our 100th episode on Wednesday the 11th of May, then do click on that link. We hope to see you there. 
I haven't decided whether you're allowed to come yet, but I'll let you know shortly. I'm on tenterhooks. <laughs> if you don't let me come, I'm just going to abseil in anyway. <laughs> There's no keeping me down. I'm like Chumba Wumba. I get knocked down and I get up again. <laughs> <laughs> like the milk tray man in your, in your black polar neck. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bajard, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, No Hitch with Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 